Y'all turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. We're continuing our series from one of the really great chapters of the Bible, and we're talking about hope. But I want to start with something that really has very little to do with hope, just for fun. And this is something that someone emailed to me a few years ago, and I wanted to share it with you. I got some pushback after the first service uh, because a couple of people had titles they wish were in this list I was, I'm about to give you, but this is the list I was given. This is uh, the, the greatest country music song titles of all time, okay? Now, you be the judge. So here we go. Number one, her teeth were stained, but her heart was pure. How can I miss you if you won't go away? I wouldn't take her to a dog fight because I'm afraid she'd win. If my nose were full of nickels, I'd blow it all on you. If you don't leave me alone, I'll go and find someone else who will. My wife ran, ran off with my best friend, and I sure do miss him. Thank God and Greyhound, she's gone. I'm so miserable without you, it's like having you here. And my all-time favorite, you're the reason our kids are ugly. <laughs> now, the only way I can possibly work that into anything profound is to say that sometimes life is like a country music song, isn't it? And I'm not talking about modern country music. Hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but modern country music just isn't the same. It's all about pickup trucks and beer and girls that are too dumb to know they shouldn't be with guys like you. And it's just, it's written by people who haven't figured out that life is hard. They, they think that, that Hope is found in this life and having a good time. They haven't come to understand that having that kind of good time doesn't lead to good things. But okay, I'm getting into another sermon. But old country music was about the hard knocks of life, the difficulties we face. It was, it was blues with a country twang. It recognized that, that life is hard. And I understand that when you're in your teens or your 20s, it's hard to wrap your mind around that because when you're, when you're that young, oftentimes you haven't taken enough body blows from life. And so you still have hope in this life. This life is your hope. Someday I'm going to get married. Someday I'm going to have kids. Someday I'm going to be successful in my career. Someday I'm going to have these wonderful experiences, see the world, do amazing things. And there comes a point, and it depends on how hard your life has been, but there comes a point where you cross a threshold where you realize, man, if this life is all I have, I'm in trouble. And that's when you really need the hope that we're talking about in this series, the hope that only Christ can give. This past summer, my family went to a theme park, and we rode all kinds of rides. I'm not really a theme park guy. My wife is. Um, we had a great time. We, we rode one roller coaster that was high speed, corkscrews, spins, the whole nine yards. It was really fun. But as soon as it was done, I looked at my wife and she looked at me and both of us were sick as dogs. I mean, we were just barely able to stand. We staggered into the, the nearest souvenir stand and we said, do you have any Dramamine? They said, yes, sir, we do. And she held up a little packet with two pills in it. And she said, I'm sorry, sir, but this is what they charge. It's $3 for this little packet. And I said, sold. I mean, that sounds great. If they would have said, we need your left kidney and one of your kids, I would have said, absolutely. Pick which one. I, I don't, I was that sick. I was that miserable. Does anybody else ever experience motion sickness? Anybody here ever felt like that? Okay. Why does this happen? 
I'm not an expert, but I've read some experts who say that it's because when you're in motion in a vehicle that is guiding you and you're not in control, your brain doesn't know how to anticipate the motion. And so because your brain is thrown off balance, it responds by getting sick. And so they say, I don't know if this is true, they say that if you tend to get car sick, if you will volunteer to drive, you won't get sick because your brain will know, will be able to anticipate every turn, every dip in the road because you're in control at that point. Give it a shot, maybe it'll work. Here's what I do know for sure. Life is easier when you know what's coming. Life is easier when you know where you're headed, right? And that's what hope is. Hope is not optimism, and I love optimism. I would much rather be with optimists than pessimists. Glasses half full, people are much more pleasant. But optimism can get you into trouble. Optimism can break your heart. Optimism can lead you to make incredibly bad decisions. Hope is different. Hope recognizes that life is hard, but hope says it's all right because I know where I'm going. I know where I'm headed. There, this life has some corkscrews and it has some spins and it has some dips and it has some high points, but through it all, I know where I'm going. Do you? That's what we want to talk about today. Where are we headed? We've talked about the hope that's found in 1 Corinthians 15. We talked about the gospel and how God is for us and, and sent his son to die for us and rose again the third day. Last week, we talked about how our hope is grounded in that fact of resurrection. This is why in, in our service today, we sang so many songs about resurrection. No, it's not Easter Sunday, but in a way, every Sunday is. And because Christ rose, we have hope. Last week, we talked about how we know for certain that happened. It's the most verifiable event in history. And we can be certain of our hope. Today, we want to talk about, we want to get into a real concrete look at what that hope looks like. What do we have to look forward to? I don't know what you picture eternity as, but hopefully today we'll fill in some of the blanks and help you see what we have ahead of us in Christ. So let's read verse 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So what do we have to look forward to? Four things that we see in this passage, four things that we can get excited about. Number one, we have a new life to look forward to. We look forward to new life beyond this one. We, we talked about verse 20 last week a little bit, but we looked at it again today. We just read it. When Christ rose again, Paul says that was a first fruits. Now, what does that term mean? Well, it, it harkens back to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 
you know, the book of the Bible you never read, that's, that, that was part of the founding documents of the nation of Israel. When, when Israel was being created by God, he said, here, here are the principles I want you to follow. And one of them was, when you bring in your harvest every year, this was an agricultural people, when you bring in your harvest, make sure you bring the first of it to the temple and give it to me. Why? Does God need food? No, not at all. But he wanted those people to offer themselves in faith. He wanted them to practice that act of faith and to say, I know, Lord, that all of it's really yours. So I'm giving you the first of it because I have faith that I'm not going to starve to death, that if I obey you, you're going to provide for me. And there's a lot more where that came from. And this is why, as you saw in the video earlier, that's why people who are Christians give 10% of their income back to God. They know that it's an act of faith. They're saying, hey, I trust that if I do what your word says, you're going to open the storehouse of heaven and I'm going to have plenty. This is not a way to get rich. This is a way to be free. And I know that I can give 10% of my income because there's a lot more where that came from. You're going to provide for me. And so when God raised Christ from the dead, he was giving us his tithe. He was saying, this is the best I have to give. This is my first fruits. And there's a lot more where that came from. And as verse 23 says, someday Jesus is returning. And when he does, we will arise. Now, what does that mean exactly? Because a lot of people have this false idea of heaven. We talked about this some last week. That, that heaven is when you die, your spirit goes up to be with God, and you've got angel wings and a halo, and you play a harp, right? But that's not what the scriptures say. It does say in scripture very clearly that when we die, at the moment we die, if we're in Christ, we go to be with God. That is true. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, and today means today. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you've got a loved one who has passed away, they are with God right now if they were in Christ. And when you face your own death, you don't have to worry. As soon as you cross that threshold, boom, you're going to be in the presence of God. You know what? We don't know what that's going to be like. But the Bible does not give us any details about what that realm of existence is like. Jesus called it paradise, so it must be good, but we don't have details. Like I said last week, that's not a tangible hope. So our hope is something else, something greater. Again, in verse 23 says, our hope is fulfilled on the day Christ returns when we ourselves rise, when we gain our bodies, our new bodies. Now, last, next week, we're going to talk more specifically about what those bodies are going to be like. So you don't want to miss next week. Find out what you're going to, what you're going to be walking around in for all eternity. But for now, let me just say this. A lot of Christians don't know about the bodily resurrection. I didn't know about it myself until I was an adult. And I was raised in church. Every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, I was in church. My mom told me Bible stories for bedtime stories. I said my prayers every night. My grandparents' parents were Christians. And yet, I got to be an adult before I realized, hey, I'm going to have a physical body in eternity. Now, why is that? Why did I not know that? I think the devil wants us not to know it. I think the devil is quite content with us knowing that we go to heaven when we die and that it's better than hell. But he doesn't want us to have any more specifics than that because he wants us to think that heaven is this misty, ethereal, quote-unquote, spiritual place where nothing really exciting ever happens. He wants us to think that, yes, we get to escape the, the horrors of hell and, and we get to be with all the good people in the presence of God but he doesn't want us to know that there's anything good about it. 
He wants us to think that all the fun that can be had has to be had down here. He wants us to think, yeah, I'm glad that Christ has saved me so I don't go to hell and so that I get to be in heaven, but if I really want to enjoy life, I better enjoy it now. I, I, I better pursue success. I better make a lot of money. I better, I better find Mr. or Ms. Wright. And if I'm whoever I'm with right now, if they're not right, I better find someone else. I better, I better be about me now because life is short. Isn't that the message you get from most popular entertainment? Life is short. Live for now. The devil loves that philosophy, and it ruins so many lives. Whereas those who know about what comes next, the new life we have in store, can say, it's all right. God has, has commanded me to put others first. I can do that. Because anything I give up for their sake, I get back a hundredfold. God has told me to put him first. It's all right. If I pursue his will to the ends of the earth and my body is burned, I get a new one. Nothing I give up in this life is really a sacrifice when you think about it. I am free to give my life away as long as it is done in obedience to God because something better is coming. Something far, far more wonderful is on its way. In the grand scheme of things, we're just in the airport. The trip to the real place is yet to come. That's what the new life means. And that, that's why we can live with generosity and abandon and forgiveness and joy in our hearts, even when the circumstances of our lives aren't what we would want them to be. We have a new life. That's what's ahead of us. Secondly, justice is something we have to look forward to. We know that justice is coming. I remember reading a story about a man who died at an advanced age and he didn't have any relatives. The city sent in a firm to clean up his house because it was an absolute uh, mess. It was, there was, he was a hoarder. There was stuff everywhere. And as they were cleaning up, they found inside the house there was a false wall in one of the rooms. And inside that wall was a skeleton skeletal remains. And they did forensic testing and they found that this was his wife, his wife who he had declared missing 25 years before. And they tested further and found she died of blunt force trauma. And they realized, and, and it, news broke out and everybody was just astonished. They said, how horrible, this man got away with murder. And I know all of you have heard stories like that. You've heard stories and you've seen things in the news about people. Maybe they had a good lawyer. Maybe there just wasn't enough evidence. But for whatever reason, they definitely did the crime, but they didn't do the time. And we all, we all, uh, we're all angry about that, and we should be. But the truth is no one ever really gets away with it because the Bible is very clear. Someday all of us will have to stand and give an accounting for our lives to the one who sees everything. No one ever really gets away with it. That, that political leader in some other country who's oppressing his people, who makes you so anguished and angry, angry they're going to get there someday. The, the person who abuses little children and doesn't seem to have to pay for it, they will have to stand before their, that, those children's father, their real father someday. And as verses 24 and 25 says, when Christ returns, even the demons themselves will give an accounting before him. When he talks about, when it talks about this language of uh, authorities and dominions and powers, that's, that's terminology that in the New Testament always refers to unseen forces, angels or demons. And it's saying all of creation, even the unseen things, 
They will bow before Jesus. They will pay the price for their rebellion, for their wickedness. Everything, everything on earth will be accountable to him. And when it says that his enemies will be placed under his feet, that's language that's cribbed from from Psalm 110. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. Someday he's going to make all of his enemies his footstool. And I think it's noteworthy. We think of Jesus as being this very gentle guy who never harmed a fly, but that's not the way the devil saw him. When you read the New Testament, every time Jesus walks into the presence of someone who's demon-possessed, how do they respond? They're always terrified. They're like, oh no, it's Jesus, not him. Every time, read it, not one of them ever has any courage in them because they know he's their boss. He's their daddy. He's got them beat. Someday there's going to be justice. Someday, someday everything will be made right. And you know what that means for us? That means that there shouldn't be any room in our hearts for bitterness anymore. You see, if if we've got grudges, if we've got bitterness, if we've got anger and resentment in our hearts, what we're really saying is, Lord, I can't trust you to give me justice, so i got to get it for myself. I've got to hate this person because it's my job to make them pay. And, And whether that's with my fists or with my pocketbook or with my evil machinations behind their back or with my gossip, or just sitting here and smoldering with anger inside and hoping bad things happen to them. One way or another, I need to make them pay because nobody else is going to get justice for me. i got to do it myself. That is a lack of faith in God. And yet, if you believe the promises of Scripture and you believe what God tells you, then you're free to say, this person wounded me, but it's all right. I'm going I'm to obey the command of God and love them in return. Because through my love, through my prayers for their salvation, through, through my countercultural actions on their behalf, one of two things is going to happen. Either, number one, they're going to be so astonished at the way I treat them that they're going to be convicted of their own sin and turn to Christ and be forgiven, and then I will defeat my enemy by making him my brother. Or two, they're going to be hateful and evil to the grave, and then they're going to stand in front of my father and have to give an accounting for the way they treated his child. Either way, I win. And we may not be big and bad in this life. Some of you are. I'm not. Some, we may not have teams of attorneys fighting for us and, and, and helping us get over in every case, but we got a heavenly father and a son who's our advocate and a Holy Spirit who is, who is directing the course of life, and someday, someday there will be justice. And so we're free to forgive, and we're free to love everyone God brings into our lives, no matter how badly they may treat us. And third, we look forward to a reverse of the curse of this earth. This world is warped. It's not the way it ought to be. Some years ago when my daughter was in middle school, she convinced my wife and I to read the Harry Potter books. And it was really, really hard because I'm a football guy and Harry Potter was nerdy, right? And it was a kid's series. I don't, I don't have time for that. I got all these other important books to read, but she convinced me, and she's my daughter. And I was astonished at how good the books were. They were really, really well written. And I got into them. I got excited about them. And, and there was this moment, by the way, in case you haven't, haven't had any familiarity with these books, let me sum up the, the plot really quickly. There's this little boy, Harry Potter. When he's a baby, his parents are killed by the evil wizard Voldemort. I know, that's an incredibly nerdy sentence to say. Just stick with me. And, and this boy grows up, and he's determined to bring Voldemort to justice. Okay, short version. Toward the end of the book series, 
There's this scene where Harry and his friend Hermione are in his hometown and they visit a cemetery where his parents are buried and he's never been to their grave before. And he goes and he visits it. I, I think it's on Christmas. Is that? Yeah, she's confirming. So yeah, it's on Christmas and he goes, they go to his grave, to, to their grave, and, and they look on the tombstone and written on the tombstone is this epitaph. It says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it should. We just read it. It's verse 26. Now, Harry and Hermione don't recognize it as Scripture, and so they're trying to figure out, well, where does this come from? What does this mean? And Harry's, Harry knows that his enemy, Voldemort, is, is a guy who's so afraid of death that he's literally sold pieces of his soul to try to make himself immortal and it's instead turned him into this twisted, deformed person of a man. And, and, and so Harry says, well, that's what it means. It's about, it's about trying to beat death. And Hermione says, no, I don't think so. She says, I think it's about living beyond death. It's, it's about life after death. And she's recognizing something. She's recognizing that in order to experience the hope that we have, you actually have to die. In order to have life after death, you have to taste death itself. And I was amazed to see this, this vision of Christian hope in a children's book series a fantasy series about a wizard. It was just amazing to me. And it made me think how many people don't understand what hope really looks like and why the world is the way it is. What's the most famous verse of the Bible? What's the shortest verse of the Bible? Anybody know? Jesus wept. You know why you know that, right? Because when you were a kid, somebody told you to memorize a verse of the Bible and you were like, hey, what's the shortest? And that's it, right? Now, why did Jesus weep? In John, it tells the story. He's sitting at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he's weeping. Everyone else is weeping too, but Jesus' tears are different. Jesus is not weeping because his friend has died, because in just a few moments, he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to come stumbling out of that tomb, wrapped in his, in his grave clothes, but alive. Jesus isn't, isn't missing his friend. He's angry. You read the text, and, and this is one of those rare cases where knowing Greek helps, but uh, the text tells us that Jesus wasn't sad. He was angry. The actual word that's used is a term of anger, not sorrow. Jesus was angry at what had happened to his world. He made a perfect world, a world where people didn't die before their time, where, where people loved one another, where everything was the way it should be where there wasn't sorrow, where there wasn't pain, where there wasn't war, where there wasn't violence. And look what has happened to it. Now he's standing at ground zero, and he's angry, and he's looking forward to the day when all of this is going to be reversed, and he's like, I, I can't do it yet. It's not time, but I'm going to reverse a little piece of the curse right now. Lazarus, come forth, and he does. And Someday that's going to happen in grand scale. Someday, someday, you and I will look back and we'll say, hey, remember back when we used to go to funerals? Hey, remember back when you'd look in the mirror and you'd see every day, man, I look a little bit more like my grandfather? Remember back when you'd go to the doctor and, and the doctor, remember doctors for that matter, but remember when you'd go to the doctor and he'd say, boy, it doesn't look good. Remember, remember when you turn on the TV and there would be all these horrible stories, earthquakes and floods and, and wars and famines. Remember, remember, remember all the plagues? Remember the injustice that we saw and the rich got richer and the poor got poor and, and if you had money, you could get over on those that didn't? Remember how that was? Doesn't that seem like a, like a bad dream that you had several weeks ago? 
You can just barely remember because none of that happens here. We're in a world where God is wiping every tear from our eyes and there's no more sorrow or pain and no more death. The curse has been reversed. That's what we have to look forward to. So every time you watch the news and you say, man, this just isn't right, and every time you go to a funeral and and you think he shouldn't be dead, and every time life goes against you and kicks you in the gut and you think this is not the way life is supposed to be, what you're really experiencing is homesickness. God made you to desire a different kind of world, a world you haven't experienced yet. You still haven't found what you're looking for. It's coming. The world you're homesick for, the home you're really from, which you've never really seen with your eyes, is coming. On the day that curse is reversed, when Jesus returns, that's our hope. And fourth and finally, God will be glorified. This is is the best part. This is the main thing. God is going to be glorified on that day. Verses 27 and 28 are really confusing. I know it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around, especially when it talks about Jesus is going to be triumphant, and yet he's still going to be in subjection to the Father. And what is that all about? If you know anything about Christian doctrine, you know about the doctrine of the Trinity, right? So... God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's one God, three persons, very distinct. They're able to relate to one another, and yet they're all one. I don't know how that works. As I said in the earlier service, I'm in sales. I'm not in management, so don't ask me. But I know this. What verse 28 is telling us is there is no rivalry within the Godhead. Someday Jesus is going to be triumphant. Someday he is going to be crowned king over everything. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And instead of saying, hey, look at me, I'm number one, he's going to point to his father and say, yes, but it's his glory. I don't know how that works. I just know that it will be. And then it says, so that God will be all in all. And that's the key phrase, I think. God will be all in all. And what does that exactly mean? I think it means at least two things. I think, first of all, it means for the first time and from then on forever, you and I will have an unhindered relationship with our Heavenly Father. From then on and forever, we will never again have to open our Bibles to try to figure out who God is because He's going to be right there in front of us. We'll never have to listen to another sermon to try to figure out what God wants us to do because we'll be able to ask Him. We'll never wonder all those imponderable questions of life because we'll be able to glean His wisdom firsthand. We'll have a face-to-face relationship with Him. And I think it also means that from that day forward and forever, all of the earth, all of the universe... Every star, every planet, every atom, every molecule, every cell in my body, every thought in my brain, every word from my tongue, everything, everything will be perfectly exactly the way he wanted it to be and will point to him and will glorify him. And so everything we do will be an act of worship. It's like this. Imagine you've got a friend who has this beautiful house. She's a woman of great means and she's bought a beautiful house and she keeps it in immaculate fashion. And once a week, she throws these lavish uh, dinner parties for all of her friends and all of her neighbors and basically anyone who wants to come. And she's the perfect hostess and there's always more than enough to eat and there's always great laughter and it's a wonderful place. And you just think of it as the best place on earth. And then imagine your friend one day says, I'm gonna go away. I'm gonna go away for a year to do uh, mission work. And she leaves her home in the care of the teenage son of her next-door neighbor. Yeah, you're with me too. 
So imagine months later, it's just, it's just weeks before your friend is going to come home and you decide to go by the house and check on it. And you go and the house is in a shambles. You see that first thing you see when you walk up is the yard has not been mowed in forever. It's, it's a jungle. And, and you go into the house, which of course is unlocked, and, and you see that the teenager has, has not done anything but party in this house. And all of his friends have, have written on the walls and, and left beer cans everywhere. And, and there's, there's messes on the floors and there's this horrible smell here and there. And, and you think you know what the smell is, but you don't want to think about what it is. And, and, and the windows are cracked and, and it just looks horrible. And you start to weep because you can look around and you can still recognize the home of your friend, but it doesn't reflect her at all. And so because you love her, you start to clean up the house and you get out your hefty bags and, and you get out your cleaning materials and you're doing your best to put things right. But you know, I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm not a specialist. I don't know how this should be. I'm going to do my best, but it's not really going to be right until she comes home. Because when she comes home, she's going to put things right very quickly. And once again, this home will point to what a wonderful person she is. And you look forward to that day, even while you're doing your best to make it what it should be. And that's, that's the story of humanity right there. Because God created a perfect world, a world that completely pointed toward his righteousness and his beauty and his goodness and his love. And he left it in our care. We're the teenage kid, okay? And we destroyed his world. And we brought the curse into this world. This world doesn't glorify him, not like it should. You can still look around and see glimpses of his beauty that, that remind you of him, but, but it's shrouded. And so when you become his child, one of the things that you're determined to do is, is remake the world in his image. That's, that's what Christian service is. Every time you address an injustice, every time you help a hurting person, every time you witness about your faith to someone who's lost, you are remaking the world a little bit more in the, in, in the image of Christ. You're, you're making things a little bit more what they ought to be. But you know it's not going to be perfect. Not until he comes back. Because when the, when the master of this house comes back, he's going to set things right very quickly and everything will be the way it ought to be to his glory and praise. And so the work you do now is worth it. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But it will be complete when he returns. So imagine two people are brought into an emergency room at a hospital at the same time. Two ambulances arrive, boom, boom. And in one is a young man who was texting while driving and ran into a telephone pole and crushed both of his legs. And he's in immense pain. And the other one is a young woman who is in the last stages of labor with her first child, and she's gone past the point where you can still get an epidural, so she's going to have to deliver this baby naturally. She's in immense pain. Who's in worse pain? I don't want to touch that one. Who's got more courage? Who's going who's to handle their pain better? My money is on that young woman. You know why? Because she has hope. The kid, the, the guy who was texting while driving, all he knows is, I'm in this shape because I did a stupid thing. All I have to look forward to is learning how to walk again. Maybe someday if I can drive again, the one good thing that will come from this is I will never, ever text and drive again. But that young woman can say, this is pain. This is horrible pain, but it's producing something. It's producing something beautiful. Every contraction brings me a little bit closer to seeing what I've always wanted, to bringing into my life a treasure that I will, I will enjoy for the rest of my life. And so someday when she looks back on it, she'll hardly even remember the pain. 
although she'll tell her child, it was 24 hours, you came out sideways, it was horrible. In her heart of hearts, she's going to say, it was worth it. It was, it was worth it. And I say that because Romans 8 says this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You see that? It says we live in a pregnant earth. It goes on. It says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Every time you turn on the news and you see something awful that's happened, every time something bad happens in your life, just remember, that's labor pains. It's producing something. This world is collapsing so it can make way for a better one. Our bodies are withering so that it can, they can give birth to perfect bodies. We'll talk about that next week. Our relationships are frayed and, and, and are difficult to maintain because someday we're going to have relationships that are perfect and harmonious. Our souls, man, we stumble, stagger into sin after sin, but someday, someday that, that repentance, that sorrow is going to give birth to righteousness and perfection. That's our hope. We know where we're headed. So think about this, that this week when this world puts you on a corkscrew and sends you plummeting downward. We know where we end up. And so we will conquer. We will win.